0: WLCC Brandon.
1: Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey.
0: The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded.
1: The man's on trial for his life. What does this ancient story of jealousy have to do with Stephen's present trial? Well, the reason he states that it was jealousy that motivated Joseph's brothers to hate and reject him is because this was precisely the reason that the Sanhedrin had Jesus arrested and handed over to Pilate to be crucified. We read this in Mark chapter 15 verse 10. Speaking of Pilate, we read for he, meaning Pilate, he was aware that the chief priest had handed Jesus over because of envy. Listen, the Jewish leaders were envious, jealous of Jesus' Why? Because he was so popular with the people that they saw him as a threat to their power, a threat to their influence over the people.
2: in the middle of a history lesson on the Jewish people, and our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff and Stephen from the Book of Acts. If you're just joining us, this is Verse by Verse, and we're in a series called Stephen's Defense Before the Sanhedrin. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. I mentioned another teacher named Stephen. He is the one in the Book of Acts, chapter 6 through 8 specifically, who is was on trial before the Sanhedrin. Stephen is giving a history lesson of the Jewish people, and he has gone back to the time when Joseph was sold into slavery. There are a number of things that could be said about the horrible behavior of Joseph's family, but Stephen doesn't mention any of those things. What Stephen does mention, though, are three issues. First of all, notice that he speaks of... Well, let me pause here. I see our teacher, Pastor Steve Kriloff, has finished his warm-ups and is ready to start on today's verse-by-verse, so I'll let him pick up where I was about to go.
1: There are a number of things that could be said about the horrible behavior of Joseph's family, like, for example, his father's terrible sin of favoring one child over another and like the despicable act of selling Joseph into slavery. But I want you to notice that Stephen mentions neither of these things. Now, they're both horrible things, and we could speak about them, and Scripture does address those subjects, but not here. That's not Stephen's purpose. What Stephen does mention, though, are three issues, which when you see these issues, you'll understand his reason for bringing these particular issues up and where he's going with his defense before the Sanhedrin. First of all, notice that he speaks of the jealousy of Joseph's brothers towards him. He said the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. Now, why would Stephen say this? Why is their jealousy of Joseph relevant to Stephen's defense After all, the man's on trial for his life. What does this ancient story of jealousy have to do with Stephen's present trial? Well, the reason he states that it was jealousy that motivated Joseph's brothers to hate and reject him is because this was precisely the reason that the Sanhedrin had Jesus arrested and handed over to Pilate to be crucified, We read this in Mark chapter 15, verse 10. Speaking of Pilate, we read for he, meaning Pilate, he was aware that the chief priest had handed Jesus over because of envy. Listen, the Jewish leaders were envious, jealous of Jesus. Why? Because he was so popular with the people that they saw him as a threat to their power, a threat to their influence over the people. This is why we read, for example, in John chapter 11, Starting in verse 47, "...therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." Instead of saying, if he is the Messiah, then we need to bow down before him and accept him, they're having a political discussion here. That's what this is about. If this continues... The Romans are going to take away our power. And their conclusion to this problem that they have with Jesus is that they decided they needed to eliminate him, get rid of him as a threat, which meant that they plotted to kill him. That's what verse 53 says. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So understand that the reason Jesus was murdered was not strictly because the Jewish leaders disagreed with him as to his identity. It wasn't simply a matter of interpretation In large part, it had to do with their greed, their lust for power and authority. It Really, as I said, it was a political issue as well as a religious one. And the reason then, note this, that Stephen speaks of Joseph's brothers being jealous of him is because he wants the Sanhedrin to connect the dots, the dots of history. He wants them to face the fact that what drove them to reject Jesus, it's the same wicked attitude of jealousy that drove the patriarchs to reject Joseph. You see, while Stephen is the one on trial, he's actually building his case against the Sanhedrin, that they, like their ancestors, their jealousy has driven them to hate and to reject the one God sent to deliver them, Jesus, the righteous one. Second issue that Stephen brings up in his opening words about Joseph is that it was the act of being sold into slavery that brought Joseph to the land of Egypt. And folks, I want you to understand this is very significant, because remember, Stephen is making the case that God is not limited, God is not confined to working in his Jewish temple, but that he's active in the lives of his people wherever they are, and he was certainly active in Joseph's life even while he was living in the foreign country of Egypt. By the way, that is the unnamed country that Stephen has just mentioned in connection with God's promise to Abraham. If you go back to verses 6 and 7, we read, but God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens, that is, Abraham's children would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, God says, I myself will judge And after that, they'll come out and serve me in this place. That's Egypt he's referring to. And now Stephen is stating how Abraham's descendants ended up in this foreign land of Egypt. It all started with Joseph being brought there as a slave. Now listen closely. What affirms to us that Stephen's primary point is to stress Joseph's location in Egypt What tells us that we're on the right track, that this is the right interpretation, is that in the seven verses in which Stephen talks about Joseph, only seven verses, he mentions the nation of Egypt by name six times. And he does this intentionally because he wants the Sanhedrin to get it. He wants them not to miss the significance of this, that even in Egypt, the country that mistreated the Jewish people for hundreds of years, God was active, and he was at work in the lives of his people. And that's the third thing that Stephen stresses in his opening words about Joseph. Notice the last statement that he makes in verse 9, a profound statement. He says, yet God was with him. The same God who was with Abraham and revealed himself to him in Mesopotamia, Stephen says now he was also with Joseph while he was in Egypt. And by being with Joseph, Stephen explains what he means, what this all means in the next verse as he tells us how God took care of Joseph and worked in his life while he was in this foreign land of Egypt. Notice verse 10. And rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and over all his household. Now, once again, Stephen doesn't go into the specific details of Joseph's life in Egypt, because as I said, that's not his purpose. He simply states that God was with him, so that he rescued him from all of his afflictions. And the afflictions, we know what afflictions he's talking about from the book of Genesis. What he's referring to for example, would be the temptation to resist his master's wife and her ongoing invitations to be intimate with her, which when Joseph refused her advances, she lied and claimed that he tried to violate her, which led to another affliction, that of going to prison for a crime he did not commit, which led to a third affliction, that of a fellow prisoner one of Pharaoh's servants, when he was released from prison, forgetting to mention Joseph and his innocence to Pharaoh, as he promised he would do. Now, Stephen also says that God demonstrated he was with Joseph while he was in Egypt, not only by rescuing him from all of his afflictions, but also by granting him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh so that he made him governor over the land. This is a reference of the time that God gave Joseph the ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams about the coming prosperity that Egypt would experience, followed immediately by a severe famine which they would experience. And then the Lord gave Joseph the wisdom to advise Pharaoh about what to do when this situation comes. And Pharaoh was just so impressed with Joseph's advice that he made him prime minister of the land, second only to Pharaoh. Now, folks, there are so many lessons that we could learn from Joseph's life, such as God's sovereignty in bringing this man into such a prominent position that God orchestrated all of this. We could also speak about Joseph's godliness in resisting Potiphar's wife. We could also speak about Joseph's patience and his submission in accepting God's will for his life, and he didn't grow bitter at all of these injustices. And on and on and on we could go. There are many lessons from Joseph's life that we could speak about. But once again, Stephen doesn't do that. And we want to stick with the text. What is his purpose? Stephen's purpose isn't to mention any of these lessons. Instead, his point is to show us, as I say, that even in the land of Egypt, God was there. He was active. He was at work. He was present in Joseph's life, thus proving that he isn't limited to dwelling in one place one building in Jerusalem. But listen, it wasn't only Joseph who God was with. He was also with Joseph's family, the entire nation of Israel, which Stephen proceeds to tell us about in the next two verses. Verses 11 and 12 say, now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. Now, just as Joseph predicted, there was a severe famine that affected not only the country of Egypt, but it affected their northern neighbor, the land of Canaan. That's where Jacob and his other sons and their families were living. And as a result of the severe famine, the children of Israel, they were just running out of food. So Jacob sent his other sons to Egypt to purchase some food because he heard that there was grain there. So the sons traveled to Egypt, which Stephen says was their first visit to the land. But in the very next verse, he tells us about their second visit to Egypt, verse 13. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Now, Stephen, once again, skips over all the details of that first visit. But Genesis fills us in. Genesis tells us that when Joseph initially saw his brothers in Egypt, when they came to him seeking to purchase food, they didn't realize it was him. In other words, they didn't recognize him. And you may wonder why he certainly knew who he was. Well, the reason for this is because he didn't look anything like the 17-year-old that they had sold into slavery. It was now 20 years later, and Joseph looked like an Egyptian, which was different than a Hebrew. He would have been clean-shaven. He would have been wearing Egyptian clothes. And he spoke to them through an interpreter so that they never suspected that he knew and could speak the Hebrew language. But after falsely, though intentionally, accusing them of being spies, Joseph sends the brothers back to Canaan with some food, and he tells them the only way that he'll believe they are not spies and give them food again as if they return to Egypt a second time with their one remaining brother who was left in the land, Benjamin, who was still in Canaan with Jacob. And that's exactly what they do. They come back to Egypt a second time. They bring their youngest brother, Benjamin. And it's during this second visit, Stephen tells us, that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. And when Pharaoh found out that Joseph's family had arrived there, he invited them to move everybody from Canaan to Egypt, and he said he would provide for them. That's what happened, as we read in verse 14. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all of his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. Now Joseph sends word to his father, Jacob, inviting him and all of his relatives, and Jacob doesn't know that Joseph's even alive, now he does, and he invites all of his relatives, meaning his children, their spouses, his grandchildren, to move from Canaan south to Egypt. And that's what they did. The entire nation, all 75 of them, went down to Egypt. And that is how the people of Israel came to dwell in the land of Egypt, and they would dwell there, folks, for the next 400, actually 400 plus years, until God delivered them at the time of the Exodus. And all the while they were in Egypt, God was with them, taking care of them. And as far as Jacob and his sons are concerned, they never did return to the land of Canaan until they died, and their bodies were buried there, as Stephen tells us in verses 15 and 16. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. And from there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. Now before we move on from the text and see how this passage actually applies to us, I need to point out to you that verse 16 presents a bit of a problem. Actually, two problems. First problem is that verse 16 appears to be saying that Jacob and his sons were buried in the land of Canaan in a place called Shechem. However, according to Genesis 50, verse 13, Jacob was buried in a cave in the field of a place called Machpelah, not Shechem. These are two different places, not the same place, two different names, two different places. So how do we reconcile this? Well, the solution is that while verse 15 speaks of the death of Jacob and his sons in Egypt, verse 16 doesn't say specifically that Jacob was buried in Shechem. It only says that they were removed to Shechem. So apparently the they refers only to Jacob's 12 sons and not Jacob himself. And that makes perfect sense because according to Joshua 24, 32, Joseph was buried in Shechem. And now Stephen tells us that all of Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, were buried there too. But it doesn't say that Jacob was buried in Shechem. Why? Because he was buried in Machpelah, as Genesis says. Second problem we find in verse 16 is that Stephen says that the tomb where Jacob's sons were buried in Shechem was purchased by Abraham from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. However, once again, according to now Joshua 24 verse 32, it was Jacob who purchased this piece of ground from the sons of Hamar in Shechem, not Abraham. Now, those who have a low view of Scripture, those who deny the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture, they assume that Stephen made a mistake here in saying that Abraham purchased this plot of land when it was Jacob who purchased it. But listen, not only was Stephen, as I told you last week, not only was he guided by the Holy Spirit when he said these words, but Stephen is an intelligent man. He's a man, a Jewish man, well-versed in Scripture. He knows the Old Testament. He's read Joshua 24, verse 32, and he very well knows that Jacob purchased this land in Shechem. So then the question is, why did he say that Abraham purchased the land when he knew that it was Jacob who purchased it? Well, there are two very plausible explanations. One is that Jacob purchased this plot of land in his grandfather Abraham's name, who, by the way, would still have been alive. Abraham still would have been alive at the time Jacob purchased it. So it's possible he purchased it in Abraham's name. Or it's also possible that Abraham, although scripture doesn't specifically say this, it is possible that Abraham originally purchased this land in Shechem, but did not settle there, so that it reverted back to its original owners, and then years later, Jacob repurchased it. Now, in either case, and I've told you this before, scripture is always true regardless of which of these explanations is correct, Scripture is always true. Scripture never makes a mistake. Scripture is without error because God is without error and this is His Word. And I bring these issues up to you in order to help you have confidence in the Word of God so that even when there appears to be a contradiction or it looks like there's a mistake, you will instinctively trust God and believe His Word and not dwell on what the skeptics say. There is an explanation, even if we don't know it. Now, these are Stephen's words to the Sanhedrin concerning Joseph. And although his words, and I understand this, even as I was preparing this message, and even as I'm giving this message, I understand that it sounds just like a history lesson. But listen, Stephen is not reciting history for the sake of history. He's making an important point about God, a point which profoundly affects us and our relationship with the Lord today. His point is that God was present. God was active. God was involved in the lives of Joseph and the people of Israel wherever they went. He was active when he used the wicked jealousy of Joseph's brothers to send them to Egypt. He was active when he used all the afflictions In Joseph's life to promote him to the position of prime minister so that he could provide food for the fledgling nation of Israel and preserve them from starvation and going out of existence. see, as with Abraham, what Stephen wants the Sanhedrin to understand is that God was involved and God was prominent in the lives of Joseph and his family, even when there was no temple, even when they lived in Egypt. So how could he, Stephen, be speaking against the temple by saying that God's presence is not confined to this one building. And folks, the reason this is so practical, the reason this is so relevant and wonderful truth for us is that even though no temple has existed for the last 2,000 years, it's because the principle that Stephen is teaching is that God is with his people all of the time. He's with us in the good times, He's with us in the bad times, and he's with us in every single location. Jesus has promised to always be with us. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, and he keeps his word. What this tells us about God, it's not simply that he's everywhere, as important as the doctrine of his omnipresence is, but that he who is everywhere is also he who is personal and he who is interested in every aspect of our lives, so that we are able to have a close and an intimate relationship with him, regardless of our location and regardless of our circumstances. In his book, True Community, author Jerry Bridges explains how one night, many years ago, his Christian life was absolutely transformed from having Christ as his savior to having a personal relationship with his Savior, Jesus Christ. He writes this, a little lengthy, but you'll appreciate it. He writes, it was in the fall of 1951, and I was a young naval officer serving aboard an amphibious warship in the Far East. The United States was at war with North Korea, and many reservists who had served in the armed forces during World War II have been recalled to active duty during this new conflict. To my knowledge, I was the only Christian aboard our ship which had some 300 men. I was a fairly new Christian and had quickly discovered that I did not have the spiritual stamina to live the Christian life alone in that rather ungodly atmosphere. It was in this setting that I was introduced to the Navigators by a fellow naval officer from another ship. We had just returned to the United States from the Far East, and he invited me to go along with him to a Friday night Bible study at the Navigator Home in San Diego. That evening turned to be the beginning Of a life changing experience for me. It was very obvious that the men attending that Bible study knew God in a personal way that I had never experienced. Most of those men were recalled reservists, who had met the Lord or had begun to walk with him through the ministry of the Navigators during World War II. Even though their lives had now been interrupted by war a second time, they were joyous and victorious in their circumstances. I soon discovered that to know Christ and to make him known was their motto, and that Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ, was one of their key scripture verses. Although I knew Christ as my Savior, these men knew him in a personal Intimate way, They fellowship with Him each day through their quiet times, their prayers, their continual meditation on Scripture they had memorized, and their sharing with others what God had done for them. To me, Jesus Christ was indeed my Savior, but an impersonal one.
2: Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin concerning Joseph might sound like a history lesson. However, he's making a very important point. His point is that God was present, God was active. God was involved in the lives of Joseph and the people of Israel wherever they went. What Stephen wants the Sanhedrin to understand is that God was involved and God was prominent in the lives of Joseph and his family, even when there was no temple, even when they lived in Egypt. So how could he, Stephen, be speaking against the temple by saying that God's presence is not confined to this one building? This is so practical for us today. The principle that Stephen is teaching is that God is with His people all of the time. He's with us in the good times, and He's with us in the bad times, and He's with us in every single location. I was blessed by today's Verse by Verse program, and I invite you to join us next time as we continue with Stephen's Defense.